Don't be alarmed, this is the DCM podcast. We do have new intro music. We are currently in the process of changing the music to the idents that you will see at the cinema before and after the advertising reel. And as a result, we have changed the audio for the intro and outro of the DCM podcast. It's still the same podcast, it's still the same quality chat for about 20 to 30 minutes, depending on how busy I am. But this month is a very special DCM podcast because it's that time of year when Advertising Week Europe takes place at Picture House Central. It's the fifth year it's been in London and each year DCM have partnered with the event and we usually do a big talk as part of the um, programme. Last year we spoke to uh, Dexter Fletcher about the power of nostalgia and his recent film at the time, Eddie the Eagle. And this year the theme was storytelling We were very lucky to be joined by one of the UK's best storytellers, Gurinda Chada, the director behind such UK box office hits as Bend It Like Beckham, Bride and Prejudice, Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging, and her current film, which is in cinemas at the moment, Viceroy's House. So we'll listen to that talk very shortly, but I thought it's also worth highlighting at this point, the amazing start to the year that we've had in the cinema marketplace. January admissions were up 7% thanks to the success of films such as La La Land, T2 Trainspotting, Sing, and February admissions were up 7.5%, and that was thanks to the big box office success of Fifty Shades Darker, the Lego Batman movie, Hidden Figures. And now with March, you might have noticed there is a certain film currently luring everyone into the cinemas it's disney's beauty and the beast which opened with the fifth biggest opening weekend of all time just a couple of weeks ago 19.7 million it then delivered the third biggest second weekend of all time adding over 12 million to its box office total and as a result admissions for march are the highest they've been this century It's looking on track to be the highest they've been this century which will help us uh, in delivering what's looking like the biggest q1 this century an incredible result and a great way to start the year especially when you consider coming up over the next few weeks we've got the new fast and furious film we've got guardians of the galaxy volume two and then going into may you've got alien covenant and then the new pirates of the caribbean film salazar's revenge which is getting very good reports from its premiere in at CinemaCon. so yeah all in all a great story at the start of 2017 as we move into q2 so, as I said earlier, the rest of this podcast is dedicated to my chat with Gurinder Chada at Advertising Week Europe. So, without further ado, let's go to my chat with Gurinder Chada, which happened last Thursday, the 23rd of March, at Picture House Central. Cool. We made it. Hello. We made it. <laughs> How are you? Oh, I'm on. Good. Uh, well, <laughs> thank you everyone for coming. We're finally starting now. Um, welcome to this digital cinema media session on the art of cinematic storytelling. We're very, very lucky to be joined by one of the UK's best storytellers. Thank you. Um, you will know Gurinder from a whole range of films, from the BAFTA-nominated debut of Bargy on the Beach through to Bride and Prejudice, the f- only film to date to be number one in both India and the UK at the same time. Same time, yes. Well, I've done my research, good. Um, (laughs) She also directed the worldwide smash Bend It Like Beckham and her latest film, Viceroy's House, is currently in UK cinemas and has grossed almost three and a half million pounds. Please welcome, uh, please join me in welcoming Gurinder Chada. Thank you. 
Thank you. Well, so I'm directing at the same time. So we're on Facebook, on Facebook Live as well. There. And we're being broadcast on the Adweek website. Oh, excellent. Very uh, good. Uh, we'll touch briefly on Viceroy's house. Yes. Um, the final shot of the film shows that this is a very personal story to you, yes. your family being affected. Yes. Why was it the right time for you to tell this story? Um, well, it, uh, I think as a storyteller, um, you, it's like all kinds of storytelling, whether it's an ad, whether it's a doc, whether it's uh, a book, you know, um, a story speaks to you at a particular moment in time, means something to you, and, and then you express it. And I think that my journey into film uh, and media, if you like, really uh, came as a direct result of racism and, the, and not seeing people that look like me on the screen and thereby feeling that people who didn't know people like me were missing out on hearing what I had to say about the world or what people like me thought about the world. And so that was the whole reason for me to go into storytelling. And with Viceroy's House, um, having made quite a lot of uh, different kinds of films um, up until that point, obviously the British, the social realism films of Bargy and Beckham and then the musical Bride, but also in America, I made a film called What's Cooking that not many people know about, about Thanksgiving Day. It's a very American film, but, and it's shown on television every year in America. Um, because it's set on Thanksgiving Day. Um, and then I made a film for Paramount called Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging, which is not Asian, but you know, uh, about kind of me when I was a girl. But um, I think with Viceroy's House, I finally uh, was inspired to do something about my history and my background, um, having gone for the first time to the, where my ancestral homeland was, uh, which became a new country called Pakistan in 1947 after the partition of India. So uh, at that moment in time, for me, it was, I want to tell this historical story. And it took a long time to get it off the ground, but it ended up uh, being Viceroy's house. How long did it take to get off the ground? Uh, it, I was inspired to do it 11 years ago when I went there with the BBC crew for Who Do You Think You Are? Um, and then mulling over it, working out how to tell the story. Uh, I started that about seven years ago. So the script took about five years. And in terms of the style of the film, you mentioned the social realism of your earlier films. And yeah. Slightly broader comedy of Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging. Yeah. Uh, this film definitely feels more epic. Uh, it's yes. definitely a grander, bigger story. Yeah. Did it feel like uh, a progression for you or a step up? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's... Uh, it's a big budget, although Bride and Prejudice also had a big budget. Um, it, it's period. I've not done period before, um, 1940s. Um, and, you know, at one point I had a thousand extras uh, in the refugee camps. Um, but also it was his historical and therefore it needed to be told with um, quite a lot of responsibility, I think. Also because the historical area it was dealing with, which was the end of the British Raj in India, the British leaving uh, a divided India, um, an independent India and the creation of Pakistan. But the birth of that, those two came through quite a, a, a bloody, uh, ugly um, partition. 
uh, where 14 million people became refugees overnight and over a million died. Um, and so it's a big series of blunders and mismanagement, basically. Um, and I wanted to make sure in telling that film that I told the history of why that happened, because it had always been uh, misrepresented as far as I was concerned. And in, in researching our script, we found evidence that actually put a new light on the history that I had always been told, the history of empire. And so I wanted to correct that history um, in this film, but at the same time, I needed to be very sensitive to um, you know, the, uh, the, the issues that the film deals with, which is communal violence, um, you know, between uh, Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims, and also um, just the role of geopolitics at that time that led to my family, uh, and in particular my grandma, my uncles, sort of suffering in the way that they did. And uh, in a more general sense, uh, people might not know that you write and direct all your feature films, don't you? Uh, yeah. How, how do you go about selecting the next story that you're going to pursue? Um, again, it comes down to what is talking to you at, at the time. And I think a lot of that is the zeitgeist, you know. I mean, I think with Viceroy's House, when we started writing the script, um, Obama was president, you know, and we were all, yeah, yes, we can, <laughs> you know. And now it's sort of, you know, a different time, of course. Also, when we were shooting the film, the Syrian refugee crisis had exploded. Uh, we didn't know that was going to happen as we were writing. Um, and then when we were editing the film, Brexit happened. And my uh, Italian editor um, he was very distraught because suddenly he felt he didn't know if he could stay here or not. Um, so we are shaped by what's around us, you know, and I think this power of storytelling is at its height when it is uh, somehow touches the zeitgeist, you know, um, uh, and what other people are thinking and feeling. So I didn't plan for all these things to happen, but here, here's a film about division about the politics of hate, what happens <coughs> when people are pitched against each other by leaders, and you know, and what happens actually when you think something is happening in one c country by its own people, but actually there are bigger powers that are orchestrating uh, uh, and you know planning things, you know, in as I said, in a geopolitical way um, that is often hidden, you know, and and covert operations. So all that is what the film is about, which is terribly contemporary today, you know. And, and I think back in, uh, so in, in the late 90s, um, I, had, uh, I had made Bargy on the Beach in 93, 94. And for me, this, I thought, okay, I'm gonna get a to make a feature film. I'll probably never make another one again. And so I put all this sort of, issues that affected me is the film is about a group of Asian women who go to Blackpool for the day uh, and so it's a sort of s British seaside comedy but then all the women are dealing with different issues and so that's what that film was and it sort of became a cult hit uh, in, in, uh, in America in LA in New York and that's why I was in America and then I got offered lots of studio films at that point but I didn't quite relate to what I was being offered and so I made my Thanksgiving movie but after I made the Thanksgiving movie, which opened 
Sundance in the year 2000. I said, no, I want to I do something in England. Why can't I get another film off the ground in England? Um, and I, I'd been in America and I came back and I think it was Euro 98 was happening. And suddenly uh, everything was changing. Again, you see, it's about the zeitgeist. You know, what I was noticing was that, in, uh, what I noticed was Ian Wright uh, just England just won a match. Remember that? Remember those times? Yep. Yeah, Long so time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so England had just won a big international match, and Ian Wright was running around the pitch with a Union Jack on his shoulders, and I was like, "Oh my God, that's the national front. That's the that's the icon of the national front. What is he doing? You know, because me growing up, that's what the Union Jack represented. You know." Um, but here was this footballer, black footballer, running around the pitch. And then in pubs, like in Camden, you know, my local, um, people watching England matches of all different colours, back, white, everything, Asian. And they were all going, England, England, England. And it's amazing to think that now, right? But in the 90s, that was a very radical, a very radical idea. Um, that as a black and Asian person, you were uh, able to align yourself in that way with a national identity, uh, with the <coughs> Union Jack, you know, and claim it back. And so I felt that things were changing in Britain, you know, um, and, and so I said, right, I want to make a film in the world of football, but the, the most important thing for me is that the, the leading character has to be an Indian girl. How can I bring those two worlds together? So that's how I approached that, watching all these football things happening and seeing Britain changing. So I wanted to, you know, so I started with that premise. How do you take this world, which seems the diametrically opposite world to someone like me, and how do I put the two worlds together? And 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 that's what Bend It Like Beckham became. And so just the idea of her wanting to play football was a very radical idea as a woman and as an Asian. Because um, we still don't really have uh, Asian footballers. Uh, I mean, I think there's a chap, one chap in Cardiff, right? Um, Probably not the person to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we don't have that many. But anyway, the point was, was that that film took an awful lot of persuading to get financed and everybody rejected it. And the point was that everybody felt that nobody wanted to watch a, a story, a film about an Indian girl who wants to play football. Um, it just wasn't um, relevant. Um, and because everyone had this idea of football being this thing over here and her being over here, you know. Um, but um, the more we, um, th you know, the more rejections we got, the more I pushed because I felt that that Britain would embrace that. We were ready for that in Britain, and um, and then of course ha having Beckham in the title helped. You know, was it, al was it almost Ian Wright? It, no, <laughs> actually, it, there's a third writer on Bender like Beckham who who is the big football fan, Indian girl called G, and she was. Uh, a big fan of Ryan Giggs. <laughs> so Giggs was originally, you know, who she favoured. Um, but at that point, I liked David Beckham because he was this young kid. He was living his dream, playing in Manchester United. 
He'd got a pop star as a girlfriend, you know. He was uh, not afraid about being a gay icon. That was the big thing. He started doing underwear commercials and, and he became a gay icon, a big gay icon. And that's why I thought, oh, this guy is really cool because he's something different. You know, it's different now because he's brand Beckham now and it's all so different. But at that time, he was, uh, he was new to the game and, and, and that's why he sort of gave us the permission to use his name in the film. I mean, I don't think we'd get that around any of his marketing team now. But It wasn't him at the end who walks across the... It was uh, supposed to be him, <laughs> but um, various things happened and he couldn't uh, make it that day. Actually, Victoria was pregnant and, uh, and had morning sickness, so uh, they were supposed to come. But also, he, he was supposed to come to the uh, premiere um, and the day after we finished the film, we were all very excited. We, ne we didn't know it was going to be a hit. Nobody knew it was going to be a hit, you know. Um, but on the day of the premiere, he was supposed to come down from Manchester. He had a, he had a, a game the night before and we had been out, uh, Paul, my husband and I, and we got home and we thought, well, let's put the telly on because if he's won, then he'll be really happy. You know, the idea was that he was supposed to finish his game, get in the car, he loves his fast cars, drive down um, at night and stay in the hotel in Leicester Square and then do the red carpet the next day. Uh, as it happens, when we got home, we put the, the, the telly on and there were ambulances everywhere. And that was the match where he broke his foot. Um, and I immediately was really upset because I thought, oh, he's not going to be, you know, at first his foot's broken. Uh, and then he's not going to be able to come for the premiere, right? Because he's in an ambulance and stuff. Um, so I went to bed quite upset. But then at 7.30 in the morning, my phone went. And it was IRN News at that time, Independent Radio News, who said, how do you feel about David Beckham not coming to your uh, premiere? And I immediately, because I'm a, trained as a journalist when it comes to storytelling, so I'm, I, uh, you know, I kind of uh, can use that, you know. Um, um, I immediately turned it around and said, yeah, I am devastated, but I'm even more devastated because what about the World Cup? Because that was around the corner. And how, how is he going to be well enough to play in the World Cup? And so then suddenly the story broke um, all over uh, the press that day and the newspaper headline in the Sun, which I, we could never have paid for, of course, a big front page was Break It Like Beckham, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then the following day, there was a picture of his foot, and you were all, all the whole nation was supposed to put their hand <laughs> on the foot, and then it was sort of Mend It Like Beckham. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. You yeah. remember the Mend I think it I like did Beckham. it. And so it... Uh, <laughs> Sweet. Anything to get Beckham back in the World right. Cup. <laughs> and so that week was an amazing week for the film because suddenly he was all over the papers for this broken foot, sadly. But, um, but that's advertising, right? And Bend It Like Beckham then became a hit musical. Uh, yes. You also worked in TV. Yes. And, um, but what is it that keeps you coming back to the cinema and making films for the big screen? I think that... Uh, well, so I saw a film at the weekend um, that I, 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 I came with someone who really wanted to see it. 
I was, I, I more came because they wanted to see it. And I sat down, you know, and I wasn't sure, I thought it was gonna be a bit cheesy and stuff. But actually, I started watching it and got transported into a different world. First thing I noticed was how diverse it was. There were a lot of black actors and actresses who didn't, who weren't written as black, you know? So I noticed that first. So for me, that was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and then I got totally swept away with, uh, with the storytelling. Amazing CGI, amazing effects. You're trying to work out what it is. Trying to work out what film it is, yeah. So it was my nine-year-old daughter and it was Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah. Um, and she was just like this all the way through. And I was like this. And it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. And I was very pleased as a British director, Bill Condon. Um, and Emma Watson, of course. Um, so I think that's the power of cinema to transport you into a, a completely different world and tantalize your intellect and your emotions and um, you know, make you feel like you have just witnessed, um, witnessed the world from a particular point of view. That's what the best films do, I think. Uh, Riz Ahmed recently quoted a statistic from Skillset in his very impressive speech to Parliament yeah. that between 2009 and 2012, black and Asian and eth uh, minority ethnic participation in film and television production dropped from 10% to 3%, which is a shocking statistic. Yeah. What can film and other creative industries do to change this? Well, I'll give you another statistic. Um, when I made Bargy on the Beach in 1993, I was the first Asian woman to make a feature film in Britain and everyone was very excited by that and it happened because Karen Bambra was head of Film 4 at that time and she plucked me up and said, you're a voice we need to encourage after seeing my first film, uh, which I did for the BFI and so I got put on this fast track to make my feature. Um, 25 years later with Viceroy's House, I'm still the only Asian woman making feature films in Britain uh, for a living and so yeah Riz is right you know I, I think it's got worse I think it's harder for people to tell their stories um, people you know women uh, people of color I mean I just think that um, you know we we are um, you know, it's, it is an industry, you know, and therefore it, it is motivated by profit. One has to understand that, you know. But I think that sometimes people don't recognise what potentially can be profitable um, and, and go, always go for the safe option um, as opposed to um, sometimes thinking outside the box. And I think, uh, I think the more people like Riz and I say these things, um, you know, people will sort of listen and go, oh God, that's terrible. But I don't know if things actually get done about it. Because it's not in my power to change it. All I can do is go on about it and keep trying to make films. But every film I make, it's always a struggle. Do you think the fact that a film like Moonlight won Best Picture at the Oscars and is uh, proving a hit at the UK box office uh, will change opportunities for minority voices in the UK? Well, you'd think it would, you know. Um, you'd, but then, you know, you, I would have thought that when 
Bender like Beckham happened and it made millions and millions all over the world that people would be looking for another film like that immediately, you know, to put out there. Um, or 12 Years a Slave or, you know, whenever these films are hits, it's like, where's the next one? Where's and, the next one? And Paul Mindanagra had to move to the US to uh, get better roles in ER and such. Yes, like. yeah. So uh, a lot of Paminda is in ER. Archie Punjabi, who was the sister uh, in Bender Like Beckham, she's in The Good Wife. So, yeah. We have time for one or two questions from the audience. Does anyone have a question that they would like to ask? We you have some microphones roving around that I can't actually see. No one's put their hands up anyway. Oh, we've got one down the front here. Gentleman in the glasses. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it's a lot of your films seem quite personal. Would you ever do a Marvel superhero film? <laughs> yes, I would, but I'd make it personal. <laughs> you know, one has to, you know, uh, you, Angus is about, uh, Angus Thongs is about a 14 year old girl who falls in love for the first time living in, in uh, Brighton, you know, and her parents are about to get divorced and, and she falls in love for the first time and is a bit geeky and doesn't know how to deal with it. So that's her story, but I had to find myself in that story in order to tell that story. Um, so I think as a, as a director, every director finds themselves in their stories. Like Spielberg always you know, finds himself in, in the films that he does. Um, I think you have to in order to emotionally connect. Ron Howard's another director that I really like. That's what he does. You know, you have to find the emotional truth of that story and how it relates to you in order for you to do a good job with it. Otherwise, you're a jobbing director, I think. And then that's fine. Um, but it just means that you're bish, bash, bosh, putting it out there. What advice would you give to any women in the audience or people from minority backgrounds who want to pursue a career in film or, um, or advertising or the creative industries? I think that um, you have to be, have to have a very tough skin. I think you have to be very resilient, but I think you have to stand firm and know that you are your stories are important and your stories are vital and you and you represent you represent so use those arguments you know we're 50 percent of the population as women we why are have we not got 50 percent of the movies out there 52 percent of cinema goers are women exactly there's my point but um but i think that i you know it's an unpopular statement but i think we should do a you know, I think we need a 50-50 rule. You know, all movies and cinemas, 50% made by women. That's it. And then 10% by, you know, ethnic minorities. That if you started doing that, things would change radically. Absolutely. Does anyone else in the audience, ha the lady put her hand up very quickly just there. Could we get a mic? Oh, you've got one. I'm already prepared. Um, hi, Grinda. I'm Topeka. I'm from Rankin. Um, from where? From Rankin Photography. Okay. Um, just want to say, massive fan, like, of all your movies. As a, sorry, yeah. as um, a young Indian girl growing up in Northern Ireland, like your movies have been absolutely inspirational. Purely because we don't really have that much of an Indian influence there, so seeing your movies have been 
a great way, again, storytelling, but growing up with that. And, you know, like you said, with an emotional connection, we I've had that emotional connection with them, so all I'm really excited is about to see what's next with you. But in that sense, whenever you, as you said, whenever you have that storytelling part, what message did you really want to get out there the most? Like, what was the most important for you to get out there in all of your movies? Um, that... Um that, that um, we see the world from a particular point of view. You know, I think what's, what is interesting is that if you are bicultural, you know, British, Asian, and bilingual, you know, you do see the way, everyone who's bilingual, there's so many people who are bilingual now, you know, you do see the world differently. You can jump into French or Spanish and English or German and, you know, culturally it's so interesting to be able to do that because you're opening yourself up to different ways of seeing the world. And that's the same for people like me. So if you're British and you're Asian, you do see the world in a different way. And having that take, for example, on Britishness, which is what Vendelite Beckham was, it's a very British film. First time I saw that film in the rough cut, after editing, you put it all, the editor puts everything that you've shot together and you sit, well, I couldn't get over how English the film was. I was like, but it's about an Indian family, but it was so English to me um, that I shocked myself, actually. And same with Bodgy on the Beach, actually, in some ways. So I think that, I think that having that cultural position um, enables us to tell stories that are at one, sense familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. But what, what we're doing is opening up a new cultural paradigm because what we're representing is, is a cultural space that is, is only going to get bigger, you know, as we see more cities that are diverse and have people who, have, who are bicultural or tricultural, whatever, you know, uh, mixed race, whatever, who have these different perspectives. And that's why a lot of my films travel uh, globally so well, um, because they represent that cultural space that so few people inhabit. You know, honestly, I look for those films all the time. I can count, I mean, there's Ang Lee, right, with Wedding Banquet, there's an example, but there's some of Miranair's work, you know, there's very few that inhabit that space, uh, which is being in the West, being either British or American or Canadian or whatever, and also being something else. And, and I think that as we all live, you know, in, in um, multicultural cities, that's actually our experience. And that's why that, that film, Beckham, was a hit, because it's, it is our experience as well. So everybody in London, for example, has a mate who's Indian, right? And so seeing that film, for them, it was like, oh, okay, is that what your family's like? Is that what your mum and dad are like? Is that? So it's a way of, op it's exactly what I set out to do happened. And interestingly, with Viceroy's House, um, it is a film about our shared history. Absolutely, I make it very clear it is about me being both British and Asian, you know, and Punjabi. And so that's the position of that film. It could not have been made by an Indian in India or a Pakistani in Pakistan. And, and an, a, a white English person in Britain would have made a different film, you know. So I think that that's a very important point I keep making. And I get into trouble for it a lot. Like when I go to India, for example, 
you know, they, for the longest time, they say, oh, it's some sort of old-fashioned version of Indianness that you're doing. And I say, no, it's not. It's, you know, it, it, it's unique, it's different, you know. Um, and I think with this film, it'll be interesting in India because a few Indians who've seen it have said that it's so refreshing to have such a, a different angle on, on the history as told by Indians in India. Um, so basically, uh, uh, it's a cultural paradigm that is, that sadly, I'm kind of one of the few people doing in, in Britain. You had that bit with goodness gracious me as well. You know, that's another example of, of that, you know, going for an English and, you know, <laughs> what's the blandest thing on the menu kind of, you know, so. But yeah, see, you laugh, but you recognise that culturally. It's a different way of looking at the Indian restaurant experience. So what is next for you? Um, I just don't know. I'm, arrest. I'm uh, definitely arrest. But I mean, I'm thinking about all kinds of different things now. I'm like, I'm, I am definitely interested in more history. I am working in, uh, I'm working on a few very good drama, TV drama series. Um, like everybody, I'm responding to the plethora of platforms for TV drama. So over the last two, three years, I've been developing some very big TV shows um, and also some formats. And there's going to be an announcement at MIP uh, about something that I'm doing with a, a very big TV uh, company. So, um, I'm do so I have that, and that's sort of my priority at the moment. But there are movies, there's fantastic movies that I'm working on. There's uh, a script that I'm, the current script that I'm working on, I don't know if it's gonna be my next movie, but it's something that is very dear to me, is um, uh, a film set in Luton um, about Bruce Springsteen. And um, again, it's that juxtaposition, you know, um, it's based on Safraz Manzoor's book, Greetings from Berry Park, um, about a young Pakistani in the 80s growing up in Luton when Rick Astley's number one in that sort of world and then trying to find his place in a traditional uh, a Pakistani household, um, trying to find his voice and then finally sort of finding it through Bruce Springsteen. Would you direct someone else's script? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, this clock is very aggressively flashing red at us. <laughs> is that, have we been talking for half an hour that or an hour? I've, uh, it's just flashing red at us now. C can we oh, keep going? Or oh, no, apparently we've got to end. <laughs> well, um, I'm afraid that is all we've got time for. Please join me in Thank thanking you. Gurinder Chara. Thank you. So that was my chat with Gurinda. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was informative. I thought she was a really easy person to interview, to be honest. Um, she was really enthusiastic. She had great answers. She loved. She really loved talking about her work. Uh, you could tell that. And she hung around afterwards to chat with people. And she got so much positive response from people in the audience and people outside the, um, the cinema who just wanted to stop and have a chat with her. It was really uh, great to see how popular she is. So that's all for this month's podcast. Join me again next month. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on, via iTunes or you can listen via Android as well. And I'll be back next month with another new guest and um, have a great month. Thanks so much. Bye.